This is DW News live from Berlin, banned in Russia. The foreign ministry in Moscow announces it is shutting down this network, Germany's international broadcaster Deutsche Welle. The move comes in retaliation for Berlin's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster. And a major blow to the so-called Islamic State. Last night's operation took a major terrorist leader off the battlefield. U.S. President Joe Biden says the I.S. leader blew himself up as U.S. forces approached during a raid in northwest Syria. Several, pe several other people also killed during the operation near the Turkish border. I'm Leilark. Thank you so much for joining us. Russia has announced it is banning this network, Deutsche Welle, Germany's international broadcaster, as a retaliatory move. The foreign ministry said it was closing Deutsche Welle's Moscow bureau and revoking accreditation for our staff there. This is in response to Germany's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. And uh, we can go now to DW Moscow bureau chief Yuri Rochetto, who joins us from the Russian capital. Yuri, can you tell us how did you find out about this uh, decision? We found out it from uh, the Russian media, the information about uh, it was on the website on the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In the meantime, I have received an official letter from uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry when I was personally officially informed that our office has to be closed starting at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. That means I can still talk to you, Laila, from this studio now, but not anymore starting tomorrow. What does this mean, uh, Yuri, to you for your work? Do you have to leave immediately? Well, we have to find out this first. Uh, at the moment, it's not clear if and if yes, when I personally and my foreign colleagues here have to leave the country. Of course, uh, this decision by the Russian authorities came as a great surprise to us. To us. Uh, we are yeah, literally shock, uh, shocked for all of us here. Uh, this news is very personal. We expected countermeasures from the Russian authorities. It was announced that uh, there would be a response days ago, but just how tough this response is surprising. There are a lot of open questions at the moment, technical uh, questions, legal questions, and so on and so on. So far, we only know from the authorities that we have to give back our press accreditation cards tomorrow during the day to the Russian Foreign Ministry. Those are the cards to, that give us the right to work as journalists here in Russia. Yuri, on a personal level, what does this mean for you and your team? Nobody from our office, Lala, and uh, that's around 20 employees, uh, will be allowed to work as a journalist for DW in Russia starting tomorrow. And, um, yeah, that affects correspondents, producers, cameramen, editors, and so on. Um, according to Russian law, they are now no longer allowed to work for Deutsche Welle. And let me say, 
On a personal note, for me personally and for all people who support our coverage from Russia, this is a big shock. Uh, I've been the bureau chief and correspondent for Deutsche Welle here in Moscow for seven years. And like all my colleagues, I have loved reporting from Russia even more. We all were, are and will stay passionate, uh, passionate fans of Russia. By Russia, I don't necessarily mean Russian politics, but uh, the people of this great country. Um, in my opinion, stories from Russia are always incredibly exciting. And this country is very rich in culture. We have reported on politics, the economy, on sports and on many, many other aspects of people's lives here. And, of course, Deutsche Welle will continue to report on Russia in uh, 30 different languages, on television, on social media and online. There is no doubt that the country plays a very important role in the world and trying hard to understand it is, it remains extremely important, especially in these difficult times. DW's Moscow bureau chief, Yuri Rochetto. Yuri, thank you. Well, the German government has called Moscow's move unacceptable. DW's Director General Peter Limburg said in a statement that the network was being used as a pawn. Earlier, I spoke to him to get his reaction. Oh, we had been expecting some measures by the Russian side, but I think this uh, is a total overreacting uh, from the Russian government because... Uh, um, it, they're closing the bureau. They, they want us not to, to broadcast anything anymore in Russia. And I think uh, also that our correspondents must leave. Um, obviously, uh, Russia is something which is uh, a really overreaction. And uh, it's not even a tit-for-tat measure if you want, want to see it like this. Because, first of all, you can't compare uh, RT German with the Deutsche Welle. I mean, we're a public service broadcaster and not a state government uh, broadcaster. And on the other hand, we have to see that uh, Russian journalists uh, will continue to work freely in Germany and can broadcast whatever they want. So, um, and this is not the case with our colleagues. So it's really um, disappointing to see this, how the Russian government is reacting. And what will happen next? Is there anything that you can do? Uh, we will take legal steps uh, and uh, try to, to see whether these uh, measures are legal, even from Russian standards. Uh, but this is something which we will have to discuss uh, in the coming, coming hours. But I think legal steps is something we will take. Um, and then we will um, discuss this also, obviously, with, the, with our institutions here in Germany. Yeah. You know, we have so many dedicated, hardworking staff uh, working for years in Russia. Have you heard from them? Have you been in touch with them? How are they feeling about this decision? Well, obviously, they're also shocked by the, by the measures because uh, everybody was expecting that there might be coming something. Uh, and this is also what the foreign ministry in, in Moscow yesterday announced, that there will be some kind of reaction. Um, but uh, I think for people who really love to work in Russia and they love the German, they love the Russian uh, culture, they, they are really into, into uh, reporting from this, this beautiful and so interesting country. It's hard to accept that they have to stop one day uh, to the other. And so I think they are shocked. And uh, yes, it is something which is, which is also sad uh, for a journalist to leave the country uh, on short notice. And in terms of press freedom, of course, the press has been under attack for some time in Russia. But uh, what does this signal to you now? Well, the press freedom in Russia is, is, is minimal. I mean, there, there are some independent outlets, but they're struggling. And this is another sign that Russia is not interested in, uh, and the Russian government is not interested in press freedom and freedom of opinion. But 
I can only say, um, even if we have to leave the country, we will intensify reporting on the country. So I think this must be also clear to the Russian side that we will not just ignore what's happening in Russia, we will report and we will do more and more. DW Director General Peter Limburg, thank you very much. Thanks for your reaction. And this decision from Moscow comes as German Chancellor Olaf Scholz prepares a trip to Russia's capital for talks on Ukraine in less than two weeks' time. Chancellor Scholz called the buildup of Russian troops on Ukraine's border very serious and said any invasion would come with serious consequences. The German Chancellor has been under pressure from other NATO members to take a harder line on Russia. For more on this, I'm now joined by Alexander Graf Lambsdorff, member of the pro-business FDP and vice president of their parliamentary group in the Bundestag. A very warm welcome back to DW News, sir. Pressure, as you know, has been built piling up, rather, on uh, Chancellor Scholz to be more proactive. Uh, we understand he will head to Moscow soon. What do you think he can hope to achieve there? Well, I think what uh, he should try to achieve is to bring Russia back into the fold in the sense that uh, the country stops threatening uh, its neighbor with this massive military buildup to underscore the unity of the Western alliance in the face of this uh, threat. Um, and also, of course, he now has an additional item on his agenda, which is the fact that Deutsche Welle has been banned from broadcasting in Russia. That is a bilateral issue of the highest importance. Can I get your reaction on that? What do you make of that decision? You know, I've been living abroad for many years. I, I follow Deutsche Welle. I watch your programs when I'm abroad. Uh, I listen to the soccer broadcasts and everything. And I know how independent Deutsche Welle is. And therefore, I think to compare Deutsche Welle to Russia today, as the Russian side, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs did today, is absolutely ludicrous. And I think it's a total overreaction from the Russian government to uh, disallow uh, any kind of operation by Deutsche Welle in Russia to send the journalists uh, abroad to even possibly brand the program a foreign agent. All of these are overreactions, which to me um, indicate a, a, a tendency of self-isolation on the part of the Russian government. And I think the Chancellor's visit may help to render that point clear that, that Russia is not helped by self-isolation. Russia needs interaction with other parts of the world, and that includes allowing Deutsche Welle to work in Russia and from Russia. Let's turn our attention back to Ukraine, if we can. How can Germany manage Russia? Well, I think nobody should assume that anyone could manage Russia. But what we need to manage is the European security structures that have grown up uh, over the last well, half century, more or less, where it's uh, clear that the borders are inviolable, that, that countries can choose their own path, that we do not uh, use uh, force. Uh, to achieve our, our, our political goals on the European continent. And this, of course, is against the backdrop of European history. We, this continent has a history of centuries of warfare, and uh, therefore it's something extremely valuable. It should be valuable to Russia, too. And I believe that is the point he should drive home, and that's the point we in the Western Alliance have to tell the Russians, you, the Russians, profits, the Russian government profits from a functioning security order in Europe as well. All right. Now, um, Alexander Graf Lambsdorff, I have to ask you, 
about the helmets. Um, it has been widely ridiculed, Germany refusing to deliver weapons into Ukraine, but prepared to send 5,000 helmets. Was that the wrong decision? No, it was not the wrong decision. I think the mistake that occurred was that it was communicated in an isolated manner. It's not the only thing we do for Ukraine. And I think that's where all the misunderstandings arise. I mean, we are uh, we have offered uh, support for their cyber defenses. We have offered military training to officers from the Ukrainian armed forces. We've sent a, a field hospital uh, to Ukraine. Uh, we're supporting the country economically and politically. Um, so there are a number of, of, of ways in which Germany supports Ukraine its territorial integrity, its political sovereignty. But to isolate this, this particular item and take it in the broader context and, and then just look at that, I understand that people are irritated by it. And therefore, I would have, uh, uh, um, you know, <laughs> hoped for a com communication on the part of our Minister of Defense that would have made clear that this is not just 5,000 helmets that we are delivering. We're delivering a lot of ways of support to Ukraine. Alexander Graf Lambsdorff, member of the pro-business FDP and vice president of their parliamentary group in the Bundestag. Thank you very much for taking out the time to answer our questions. We appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, late developments now out of Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden gave a statement a short while ago saying the leader of the so-called Islamic State is dead after a targeted raid by U.S. forces in Syria. Senior U.S. officials say Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi blew himself up as the operation got underway in the northwest of the country. And DW Washington correspondent Oliver Sallet was following Biden's press conference and he gave us more details on what the president shared. The biggest U.S. raid in Syria since the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi back in 2019. Um, we know that some 13 people were killed. Uh, President Biden praised uh, his service members. He said that all U.S. soldiers were able to get out safely. And he also explained in detail how Qureshi blew himself up there. You heard it in the soundbite. And that uh, this um, raid was a good example of how the U.S. is capable to take down terrorists. As a reminder, this raid also comes... Um, about half a year after that uh, terror attack of ISIS um, terrorists at the Kabul airport, back at the time when um, thousands of Afghani citizens, men, women, children, uh, were trying to escape the country and some 13 U.S. soldiers died uh, during this attack. Ironically, exactly the same amount of people that were killed in that U.S. raid. Um, Biden at the time vowed retaliation and now taking down, of course, the highest ISIS leader uh, is that kind of retaliation that President Biden was hoping for. DW Washington correspondent Oliver Salat reporting there. And before I let you go, a reminder of the top story that we are covering right now. Russia's foreign ministry announced it is banning this network, Deutsche Welle, and shutting down DW's Moscow bureau. The move comes in retaliation for Germany's decision to ban German language programming from Russia's state media broadcaster, RT. You're watching DW News live from Berlin. Stick with us. DW News Asia with Biresh Banerjee is up next. And I'll catch you later. One of mankind's oldest ambitions could be within reach. What if it really is possible to reverse aging? Researchers and scientists all over the world are in a race against time. 
The DNA molecule, though, has 28 million different hourglasses. They are peers and rivals, with one daring goal to outsmart nature. One of the most insightful discoveries in the history of mankind. More Life starts February 16th on DW. This is DW News Asia coming up today. Counting down to the Winter Olympics in China. People in Beijing and the athletes are bracing for the opening of the Games on Friday. But will the sport be overshadowed by concerns over China's human rights record and fears about the spread of COVID-19? Plus... Some Marines in Taiwan are going to extraordinary lengths to join an elite force of frogmen. We report on their ordeal and why Taipei has decided it is time to bolster its military defenses. I'm Biresh Banerjee. Welcome to DW News Asia. Glad you could join us. Chinese President Xi Jinping says his country will do its best to deliver a, quote, simple, safe and splendid games. He was speaking one day ahead of the opening ceremony of the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. The games will be held amidst a diplomatic boycott by the U.S. and some allies over China's human rights record. Official delegations from the U.S., Australia and the U.K. will not be at the Games, but their athletes will be. And all of them will be competing in a closed bubble. They'll be physically kept away from Beijing residents to prevent the spread of COVID-19. It's already party time on the lakes at Beijing's biggest park. Kids of all ages are showing off their skills as they warm up for the Winter Games. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Beijing's a city that has hosted both the Summer and Winter Olympics, which is a rare achievement. But there will be a lot less spectacle than at the city's 2008 Summer Games. This time, the national stadium is operating a tightly controlled closed-loop COVID-19 system to make sure overseas athletes and their teams won't have any contact with the public. There'll be no cheering inside the venues either. Games organizers cancelled public ticket sales following a resurgence of the virus in the capital. The authorities have ramped up testing and tightened social distancing measures, leading to hard times for some in the city. The government has interrupted live venues. They've had to close and they've monitored these venues closely. So it's been very difficult to keep the music industry running normally. It's not just COVID that's been dampening the Olympic spirit. The U.S. and some of its allies are staging a diplomatic boycott over the severe human rights abuses in China's far western Xinjiang region. China has dismissed the boycott as political grandstanding and says it won't affect the game's success. The, the Chinese media is obviously very, very different to, to what people are seeing in the foreign media. So a lot of, this topic, the, a lot of these topics just simply aren't reported. Um, there, there wouldn't be a huge topic about... Um, you know, uh, potential diplomatic boycotts of, of the Olympics. That's not going to be a, front, a top story uh, here in China. I don't think it would be a story at all. Local headlines are focusing on China's medal hopes instead. It's fielding its largest ever Winter Olympics athlete team 
and competing in all the events for the first time. One of the stars of the show is 18-year-old freestyle skier Eileen Gu. Born to a Chinese mother and American father, she switched allegiance from the US three years ago to represent China. I was in Shanghai uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago and I saw her face on three billboards in the space of about an hour, I think, all advertising different brands. She's also captured the attention of the country's legions of amateurs. I like her very much. She's not only good at skiing, but also speaks both Chinese and English and is well educated. We expect her to win glory for the country and achieve a good result. President Xi Jinping says he wants the Games to inspire 300 million Chinese people to take up winter sports. So even if this year's Games face organizational obstacles, China could have plenty to celebrate at the many Winter Olympics to come. And DW's Jonathan Crane is in Beijing for the Olympics. We asked him to tell us about his experience of being in the closed-loop bubble and if he had the feeling that Beijing had learned anything from Tokyo's staging of the Summer Games last year. I think in many ways Tokyo was the blueprint and Beijing has taken that and they will say improved on it. The bubble is certainly far stricter here. Don't forget China has a zero COVID policy. It wants to stop the spread of the virus, eradicate it completely. So what that means in practice for these Olympics are we are completely sealed off. Whereas in Tokyo there was a bubble. The bubble though had holes. Local staff could come and go and all participants could actually leave the bubble after two weeks. We have to be within it for the entire uh, time of the Olympics. We're closely watched. It's, it's impossible to, to leave it really. We're sealed in at our hotel. It's gated off. It really hits home. That gate only opens to allow transport to, to uh, come and go. And IOC President Thomas Bach today, they've been having their big meeting today. He was talking about the Olympic ideals and Olympic values. And he said, uh, the Olympics is about always building bridges, never erecting walls. Well, I think the irony of that probably hasn't been lost on the people here. Nor has the irony been lost on the people of Taiwan. Far from building bridges, China has been increasingly threatening its neighbor with its military. The numbers of Chinese Air Force incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone have gone up, as has the rhetoric from Beijing. China views Taiwan as a renegade province that needs to be reunited with the mainland. Now, this has forced Taiwan to double down on modernizing its own military. More on that in a moment, but first a look at how some members of Taiwan's elite amphibious reconnaissance and patrol unit, the ARP, are being tested to see if they are good enough to join the Marine Corps' elite force of frogmen. This is the final exercise of a brutal training course. The Marines call it the road to heaven. Getting over the line is not to be taken for granted. More than half of the 31 candidates failed to finish. This 26-year-old graduate says he knows what it takes to succeed. The first three days are very exhausting, but during the last few days it gets better after your body gets used to it. But of course you have to rely on your willpower and determination. The training is designed to test the stamina of the Marines and to eliminate those unable to withstand the pressure. All of those taking part have volunteered to do so. Some out of a feeling of patriotism. Others are keen to push themselves to their limits. Exercises include spending hours in the water, 
after having had very little food or sleep for days. The main reason for being so harsh to them is to train their willpower, because our unit belongs to the special forces. So in times of war we need to have stronger willpower and better physical abilities than other units. The frogmen of the elite force are among those who would be deployed in the event of any conflict with China, which has been increasing military pressure on Taiwan of late. They would be expected to scout enemy locations and call in attacks. For such tasks, the trainers say, the men need to be able to cope with the harshest of conditions. And joining me now for more is Wen Ti Sung. He's a lecturer in Taiwan studies at Australia's ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, and he joins me now from Taipei. Mr. Sung, how real is the fear of a Chinese invasion or attack in Taiwan? Well, uh, I think while people do take the possibility of a military confrontation with China seriously, I think over time people have been simply living under the possibility or the shadow of a Chinese military confrontation scenario for easily over a quarter century by now. So I think over time people just begin to try to tune it out and live their lives for the most part. And I think for the general public, that's the, that's the sense uh, they have. Obviously, for the government leaders and those who are in the military, they, do, uh, they are being a little more proactive in terms of finding out uh, ways to improve the capacity and um, mitigate the risk of confrontation with China. Speaking of the response militarily, I mean, we look at military modernization that Taiwan is undertaking. Um, I wonder if that is the cornerstone of Taiwan's strategy to counter the threat from China. Yes, I mean, I think Taiwan's strategy towards managing military uh, threats from China are essentially two pronged. You can talk about it in terms of military modernization of Taiwan's forces itself, as well as more international and diplomatic endeavors. So just to talk about, I think the first point, Taiwan's own autonomous military capacity. Taiwan obviously knows that China is easily like 50, 60 times bigger than itself in population terms. So Taiwan is not going to try to outspend China dollar for dollar in terms of military procurement. Instead, what Taiwan tries to do is to find ways that it can cultivate niche capacities. So we talk about, for example, this thing called asymmetric warfare ability, where Taiwan's tried to increase things like missile launchers, more defensive uh, ballistic missile defense systems, uh, sea mines and other ways like that where Taiwan can kind of get defensive capacity on the cheap. And right. um, in addition to that as well, um, there is something to be said about finding ways to boost Taiwan's own reserve forces. And just at the end of last year, Taiwan was going ahead in terms of uh, doing reform to its reform reserve forces structure so as to sort of park part of that military capacity in the civilian everyday economy, so as to keep it more sustainable. Uh, now, Defense Minister uh, Chu Kuo Cheng uh, last year said in October that tensions with China are at their worst in four decades. Does Taipei see these getting worse this year? Well, Taipei certainly believes that there's a lot more need to take it even more seriously than it has to than it had in the past. 
Uh, I would say that in terms of actual degree of threat assessment, Taiwan is largely alert but not alarmed at the moment. The primary reason being that in order for China to launch a successful invasion of Taiwan, China still has a long way to go in terms of developing the amphibious uh, landing capacity and transportation capacity across the Taiwan Strait before a actual occupation could happen. So in that uh, front, Taiwan is still relatively confident that it's able to hold off a Chinese offensive. Uh, but meanwhile, right. all this intensification of military planes, uh, Chinese warplanes near Taiwan Strait do create greater risk of escalation as was well accidental escalation when things could get out of control. We'll leave it there for the time being. Thank you so much for joining us today. Venti Sung from the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific. Thank you so much. And that's it for today on the program. There's, of course, more from the region and more about the tension between China and Taiwan on our website, dw.com forward slash Asia. And as ever, you can, of course, always follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're back again tomorrow at the same time. We will see you then. Bye-bye. Restrictions are intensifying once again. But are these measures enough to stop the spread of Omicron? Facts, data, and reports. COVID-19 special. Next on DW. Stay informed. Live and on demand. Podcasts and language courses. Video and audio. Anytime, anywhere. The DW Media Center.